Mu Yang spent much of the past decade studying mouse models of autism, most recently as an associate research scientist at Columbia University. To better understand autism, she and other researchers in the field were working to map the social behaviors of mice onto those of people. The idea was that if you could produce experimental animals with behaviors like those we see in people with autism, we might use these animals to test new ways of treating autism. Over time, however, Yang began to question some of the assumptions behind her own work. I published so many papers on mouse. I wrote many, many, many times myself that, okay, this nose to nose sniff is analogous to human eye contact. I wrote that thing, I don't know how many times. And now when I think about it, okay, wait a minute. What empirical evidence do I have to say nose-to-nose -nose sniffing has anything to do with eye contact in humans, other than the fact that they look the same to me? When was looking the same to someone a valid evidence in science anyway? But when it comes to autism, people accept that. People accept, oh, yeah. Look, it does look like eye contact, doesn't it? Do, do, <laughs> what else do I know about this other than the look? You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Jacob Brogan. In this episode, we'll be discussing that mouse model research that Yang and many of her colleagues have pursued. We'll hear about what they have long hoped this work could achieve, but also why some scientists have grown cautious about their efforts and now think the field would be wise to move ahead in a different way. Although mice may have faults as experimental animals in autism research, and we'll get to those in a minute, there are good reasons to study them. As Jill Silverman, an assistant adjunct professor at the University of California Davis School of Medicine tells it, one of the key advantages is that we've developed a thorough understanding of the mouse genome. We've known the mouse genome for quite a while, and basically any part of your DNA or any gene in the entire genome can either be deleted in the mouse, and then we can look at how the mouse develops and how it behaves without that gene, or it can be duplicated, so too much of it. And then we can also look at the effects of how that affects the brain and the development and the behavior of overexpression of single genes at a time. In effect, that means scientists can take a mutation that's connected with autism in people, put it in lab mice, and then observe what that disruption does. In many cases, they're looking for mouse behaviors that seem to resemble those of people on the spectrum. That's what Yang was up to when she compared nose-to-nose -nose sniffing to eye contact. What they were looking for is often known as face validity. Here's how Vaka Sohal, a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco, explains that concept. One of the things that a lot of those uh, mouse models were based on is this concept of um, face validity, which is, you know, the idea that these mice might have abnormal behaviors that just, you know, kind of at face value resemble superficially the altered behaviors um, that you see in individuals with autism or, or other disorders. So, say we have mice that normally investigate one another by sniffing each other's noses. But if you have a mouse that carries an autism-linked mutation, maybe it doesn't engage in that sniffing behavior. 
Given that this seems to be a standard form of social interaction, maybe the mouse that doesn't engage with its peers is in some ways like a person with autism. Silverman describes a typical test setup for these social behaviors. The main example that I can think of would be a reciprocal dyad interaction, meaning that there's two animals. Um, Hopefully they're juveniles because we like to study things during development as a developmental disorder. And so we simply put two young mice that didn't grow up together. Uh, They don't have the same mom so they have some unique aspects to them. And then we have them meet for the first time in this open arena um, in, in dim light and in conditions that are, you know, good for, you know, to facilitate them feeling comfortable. There's not like bright light and a lot of strange odors. And so we put them in the arena and we watch them interact with each other. We record it with digital video Um, And then later, a blinded investigator will go back and score the different types of interactions that they have. The actual interaction consists of many different behaviors, like nose-to-nose sniffing, nose-to-anal genital sniffing, following each other. Like mice play this little, um, it it would look like tag, sort of, like there's a a runner and a follower. Um, It's kind of cute. But this is where things start to get complicated. For one, mice simply aren't social in the same ways that people are. So what is a function of sociability in humans? Well, we're hunter-gatherers. We work together. You know, we increase our chance of passing on our genetic materials. And what is the function of being social in mice? That's where you kind of run into a little bit of problem. Because at least in wild mice, it's usually one adult male with a whole bunch of females and then their pups, right? This is your big family. So the adult males don't have another guy hanging out with him. It's usually that him with his wife and his kids. And then that's his territory. And then if you go out and have another male, then that's his territory. You don't have a whole bunch of male mice hanging out like wolves or even rats hanging out like in packs. Mice don't do that. Those variations are meaningful, but Silverman argues that they aren't necessarily deal breakers. I think that even though the social behaviors are different in the mice, Um, and very different than they are in humans, there is still some part of, like, fundamentally, and that that makes it the same. Particularly, like, like social learning and peer groups and, and things like that. Researchers are also attentive to the divergent evolutionary histories of mice and humans. As Goping Feng, a professor of cognitive science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, points out, those differences have important consequences for brain development. You know, many of the organs in, the, in mice, between mice and the humans, are very similar functionally. Uh, for example, liver, you know, kidneys are very similar. But, uh, you know, mouse brain, in many sense, um, are very different from uh, human brain. In particular, the prefrontal cortex is especially developed in large in primates. 
and that's because we use a lot of more cardio functions, decision making, all these things, the social interactions, and so this is. Uh, but that part of brain in mouse or in rat are very very small. Feng has still worked with mice to examine some possible genetic etiologies of autism. In particular, he studied a gene called Shank three. My lab is focused on one of the genes called Shank three. Shank is a scaffolding protein, which means it's critical for assembled, uh, you know, the large molecular complex at the postsynaptic site of excitatory synapses. And the mutation of Shank three has been found in numerous patients of uh, neurodevelopment disorders uh, with autism spectrum features. And uh, this is almost a monogenic, which means single gene mutation causes the disease. So right now, most of animal model studies are using these monogenic genes because it's easy to model. And uh, with the animal model, we can really do a lot of in-detailed studies, try to f- understand the mechanisms and how this gene works, how this mutation affects gene function, how this gene, yeah, genetic mutations affect uh, neuronal function. When you disrupt Shank 3 in a mouse, many of its behaviors look like those that are common in people with autism. In the Shank 3 models, you see the mutant animal not do as many, not not be the initiator of many social behaviors in that play interaction. They may not go over and do as many anal genital sniffs or nose to nose sniffs, and they may not participate in as many follow bouts, and they may not give as many ultrasonic vocalizations. So that's like a, it's another, it's like a calling out behavior that we can't hear that they do. So a Shang 3 animal may not do many of those things. Another thing that a Shang 3 mice have is high level of repetitive grooming. Um, so they end up doing a lot of this repetitive behavior, which sort of interferes with them participating in this social interaction. So here we've got something like face validity. Disrupting shank three in a mouse leads to behaviors that at least superficially resemble what you see when the same gene is disrupted in a person. Still, it's important to remember that even when you have two different animals with the same genetic mutation and the same general behavior, there may be other factors in play. So when we disrupt a gene or we disrupt a developmental pathway that is known to be involved in human autism, even if we disrupt the exact same gene in a mouse, you know, it may do something very different, right? And it may do something very different because the way we're disrupting it in the mouse is not exactly the same way it's disrupted in, in humans. You know, these genes are regulated in different ways, and so it might be that the disruption in humans affects the, the regulation of that gene and when it turns on or where in the brain it turns on, and, and we don't capture all those features in the mouse. Or it might just be that that gene is doing something really different in mice than humans. As Silverman points out, there's reason for caution with Shank 3 in particular. There's other things about the Shank 3 mice, though, that make them a little bit difficult to interpret because they do have these motor problems, like they don't move around a lot. And it's very hard, it's nearly impossible for a researcher to say, were you not social in this event because you can't move a lot or because you weren't being social? In other words, the same genetic mutation may lead to similar behaviors in animals of two different species. But, 
and this is important, what happens between that disruption and the behavior may be wholly distinct. And that may limit what we can learn from this research. Face validity isn't always enough, even when the underlying construct is similar. Nevertheless, researchers like Silverman still hold that such work can be valuable, so long as they focus in on what happens along the way. Ideally, what you would do is look at the mechanism by which the genes change things in in the brain, and then by seeing which big pathways are disrupted, you could go back and find drugs or treatments that target those pathways and then would improve behavior. That work could lead to new treatment models, even if the behaviors of lab animals don't resemble those of people. Instead, maybe we should look at how mice respond to specific mutations that are associated with autism and try to ameliorate their effects. Those mouse treatments might ultimately open new avenues of research for people with autism. Let's say we have a mouse model with that exact mutation. This guy have hyperactivity instead of social deficits, okay? But if it's consistent, if this phenotype is consistent in the mouse as it is in human, let's say this mutation 100% times cause autism in human patients. 100% of the time causes hyperactivity in mice. I think we're onto something. You can use that phenotype, whatever that it is, circadian abnormalities, hyperactivity, hypoactivities, whatever it has you. If you have something strong and consistent and replicable, that could be a mouse model of autism, even though that thing that manifests in mice are not what you think what autism should look like. In this sense, a mouse model might not need to exactly recreate the conditions of autism. Instead, Yang says, researchers might do well to focus on more granular issues. She speaks of this approach in terms of haute cuisine. Let's do a deconstructed chicken pot pie, right? So instead of having everything all piled up together, you have your biscuits on the side, you have your soup, you have, you know, you know, like a fancy restaurant nowadays, they always do the deconstructed stuff. So instead of everything mixed up in a pot or, you know, constructed in the way that it traditionally is, you have these co- different components, very salient, okay? You have a very salient chicken dumpling right there. You have a very strong soup component in there. So you, you have these different parts broken down that you can look at separately, right? So, so instead of looking at, at autism, like you have to fulfill all the criteria, that almost never happens in mice. In Yang's metaphor, specific mutations are like elements of a dish on a plate. When you take them in isolation, they might have totally different tastes and textures than they would together. Instead of expecting them to recreate the pot pie that is autism more generally, you have to look at what they do on their own in specific contexts. If we can zero in on those individualized components, we might be able to learn something new. It is. I think people need to be okay with just one of those multiple phenotypes, multiple symptoms, or something that is 
consistent with this mutation, but not exactly like what you think would happen in autism. Because a lot of the mutations don't do exactly the same thing in different species. Mouse models may not be perfect, but that doesn't mean researchers can't learn things about autism from them. Just that they have to be cautious about the claims that they're making and how they're getting there. As Sohal suggests, the mere act of acknowledging that our models are imperfect may be an important starting point. I would say we should not think that we can identify right now what are the right or perfect models. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from models that might be imperfect. And if we're studying an imperfect model and we're using it to really understand a pathway that we know is related to normal social behavior or you know, some other aspect of normal behavior that gets perturbed in autism, my guess is that by learning about that biology, we'll learn something that is probably relevant to some forms of autism. This has been an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more on mouse models and autism, check out Spectrum's special report on the topic, available now at spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Mickey Capper. I'm Jacob Brogan.